Well, I read the story recently about a college student. As a part of his assignment, he went and lived with the Navajo Indian tribe for one year. He slept in their teepees. He ate their food. He worked with them. He basically lived the life of a 20th century Indian. He began to have this very meaningful relationship with the grandmother of the tribe. It was a relationship that they totally understood, but most people couldn't. You see, in spite of their language barrier, they shared the common language of love. When it came time for the young man to leave and go back to his college and write his thesis, they threw a going-away celebration party for him. That party was marked with deep sadness because that entire tribe had fallen in love with that young man. As he was about to step into his vehicle and leave, that grandmother made her way through the crowd. And when she reached him, she took her weather-checked hands and laid them on his face. And with tears streaming out of her eyes, she looked him in the eyes and she said these words. She said, I like me best when I'm with you. What an awesome thing to say to another human being that I like myself better when I get around you. Can you think of a person like that in your life that you like yourself better when you get around that person? I think we all can, can't we? The first one that comes to my mind is my wife. She's a woman of strength and beauty. She's a woman of the wisdom of God and the Word of God. She's a woman of truth and grace and compassion. She's a woman of kindness. And any time any one of those virtues begin to stir in her and manifest in her, you know what it does? It brings the same virtue out of me so that I can say, you know what, I, I kind of like myself better when I get around you, Valerie. When I get around Pastor Steve, now I've known Steve for, I don't know, 13, 14 years, and our relationship has always been built on the Word of God, hasn't it, Steve? Initially, I was pouring into you, <laughs> and then you began to pour back into me, and then we pour into one another. What Steve has a tendency to do is extract the Word out of me, because when we get to talking, he just stirs the Word up in me, and all of a sudden, the Word starts coming out. I thought about the church this morning as I was praying. I said, God, I like me best when I'm with my church. I do. I see your faces. I pray for you, and I speak good things over your lives in Jesus' name, and I'm just believing with all my heart that God's got good things planned for you in Jesus' name. And I thought, God, I, there's very few things I love in life more than just to come to my church and put my arms around our people and just love them and, and just tell them how much God loves them. I love doing that. I really do. <laughs> These are people that God has gifted to bring out the best in us. They make us laugh at times. They make us cry. They make us think and they make us sigh. They are people that challenge us at times to live the God kind of life, to chase after the God kind of dreams. Isn't that the way we feel in the presence of Jesus also? He brings out the best in us. And when we get this message of grace and His message of His unconditional love really stirring in our hearts... We see ourselves the way the Father sees us. We see ourselves as totally flawless and totally faultless before the Lord. Now, if you don't like that image, there's something wrong. I happen to really like that image of me. All our hurts, all of our cares, and all of our disappointments really get swallowed up in the goodness of the Father as we meditate on the depth and the length and the breadth and the height of His amazing, awesome love. That love is found 
in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. I want to read it from the Message Bible. I think it's kind of cool how Eugene Peterson wrote this. So the Apostle Paul is speaking, and he says, My response is to get down on my knees before the Father. My response to what? <laughs> Anything and everything. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all of heaven and all of earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. I'd rather be strong on the inside. I've been thinking a lot lately about working out and getting stronger. I saw a picture of me the other day when I was 27, and man, I thought, man, I really look good at 27. Now, it's been 28 years since I've been 27, but it encouraged me. I thought, man, I need to get back to the gym and start working out. But you know what? Listen, that's good. That is all awesome, but I like the inner glorious strength a whole lot better than that brute strength. Maybe we'll have both of them. You never know. It says, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength. That Christ, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And then he says, and I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love. Is that poetic or what? I ask him that with both of your feet planted firmly on love... Listen, love is not just an ingredient. Love is a person, and it's God. The Bible says God is love. <laughs> both of your feet are planted on God, in God, in Christ. With both of your feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus. Now, this part here, I'm telling you, got in my spirit earlier in the week when I began to look at it, that you'll be able to take in, he says, the extravagant dimensions of of Christ's love. When I think about the extravagant dimensions, he just got through talking about the height, the width, the depth. Here's how Eugene Peterson says it, though. He says, reach out and experience the breadth. You got to reach for it, friends. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. Friends, let me ask you something. Do you want to live in the fullness of God? You want me to tell you how you do that? You meditate on the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. When I say meditate, I'm not talking about just think about it in passing here and there. I'm talking about meditating on it. I'm talking about quieting yourself in a place and just meditating in Scripture after Scripture and what He has done for you, the love of God. Meditate on the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Feel His unforced rhythms of grace. Plant your feet firmly on love. Reach out and grab Jesus by His cheeks and say, Jesus, it's okay, you can say it. Jesus, I like me best when I'm with you. Yeah. And I do. I like myself better when I get around Jesus. When I get around His extravagant love and I feel the unforced rhythms of His grace flowing across my heart and across my soul, I like me better. And it gives me such a glorious inner strength. Our identity no longer depends on what we have done or what we have failed to do. It depends solely upon grace, righteousness. That is where your identity comes from. Grace, righteousness alone. That's it. So when we embrace the truth that our righteousness is by grace alone, you know what the end result will be? You'll be able to rest. When you understand it came by grace alone, you'll be able to rest. And that is precisely what I want to minister to you about a little bit this morning. As I preach for a little while, a message I'm calling Resting in Grace 
righteousness. What I want you to see today is I want you to see that it's always been the heart of God for us to rest in grace righteousness. This is not just a New Testament thing. This is an Old Testament thing. It started in Genesis in that story we hear so often. It's probably one of the first stories you heard when you were in Sunday school, Noah's Ark. And eventually I want to work my way back into Noah's Ark and I want to show you that God's plan for grace righteousness had been there and resting in grace righteousness had always been there even before he laid the foundations of the earth. But before we go there, let's see what the New Testament has to say about rest. When I look in the New Testament, the very first time I see this word rest come up is in the book of Matthew, chapter 11. These verses have been imprinted on my heart for a long time. I've committed them to memory. I meditate on these verses. They're so needful at times when you need to minister to somebody. It's the last three verses of Matthew chapter 11, and Jesus is talking, and here's what he says. He says, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. He said, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We go back and we look at verse 28. This is the first time this word rest comes up, and he says to you, he says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. The word laden comes from a transportation term. It means cargo. And did you notice Jesus said, this is not a light load, this is a heavy load. He said, you that are heavy laden, he said, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. So the times we feel like we're loaded to the gills, the times that we feel that we're bursting at the seams, the times that we feel that we have the weight of the world on our shoulders, Jesus says, come unto me we get loaded down with guilt, we get loaded down with shame, we get loaded down with missed opportunities, we get loaded down with fear, we get loaded down with condemnation, and Jesus just says, I've got the antidote for that, come to me. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you notice Jesus doesn't just say, work it out? Do you notice he just doesn't say, get over it? He doesn't say, talk to the hand. He just says, hey, come unto me. He doesn't say, too bad, so sad. He says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Even if the weight is in our own making. You know, we blame a lot on the devil, but you know, the truth of the matter is, we bring a lot of stuff on ourselves, don't we? It doesn't matter. Jesus didn't quantify this thing. He didn't qualify it. He didn't say, wait a minute, now let me think about this. Now, how did you get in this situation? Now, didn't you do this? When the Holy Spirit was saying, don't do that, don't do that. That's going to bring trouble, don't do that. You did it anyway? No, he didn't say that. He said, listen, are you heavy laden? Come unto me, all ye that are broken, all ye that are heavy laden. He said, I'm going to give you rest. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Not just learn from me, but he says learn of me. And you know what, friends? I want to tell you something. That's what we've been doing at Triumph of Grace Ministries ever since we started 23 months ago. We've been learning of him and sharing it with you. We've been learning from him, sharing it with you. He says learn of me. And he says, you know, here's what's going to happen. You're going to find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want you to hear how the Message Bible gives those same scriptures. He says, are you tired? Question mark. Worn out? Question mark. Burned out on religion? Question mark. Come to me. He says, get away and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Watch me. Work with me. Walk with me. He says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. 
He said, I won't put anything on you that's heavy and ill-fitting. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Friends, we have an epidemic out there, even in the believer world, where we're supposed to be doing this, resting in grace righteousness. But can you explain why 18,000 pastors walk away from the ministry every year in the United States of America? Let me tell you why. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Those are the reasons they walk away. So, I want you to picture something here for a second. I want you to picture you have four lists. This one's the list that says, are you tired? And if that applies to you, you've got to put your name on it. Worn out, put your name on that one. Burned out on religion, put your name on that one. All three of those lists, put your name on this one. If you had a thousand people sitting in your church and you said, now if that doesn't apply to you, you can leave. There would be a few people that would get up and leave, but the majority would be up there putting their names all over these lists. And Jesus said, it doesn't have to be that way. Listen, I understand. I understand you're going to get tired. I understand you're going to get worn out. I understand you're going to get burned out on religion. But listen, I've got the antidote. Again, you come unto me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me is what he says. Learn from Jesus. Now, I love this when he says, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. The word unforced literally just means effortless. Learn the effortless rhythms of grace. Rhythms are just beats. I was a drummer in school. You ever watch people, they're in a marching band, and they could have two, three hundred people in that band, and they're all just in rhythm. They're all, how are they doing that? They're listening to the beat. I mean, you watch their legs. I mean, everybody left, left. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. How are they doing that? Because one thing, I, I was a drummer, so one thing I noticed is when the band stopped playing, the drummers didn't. Otherwise, everybody would be all over the place and not in sync with each other. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying, listen, would you just go to my word? Just go, come to me. You got an issue going on? Come to me. He said, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. He said, listen, watch the effortless way I do it. No, that's what he's saying. Watch how I do it. And all we have to do is go to the word. We can just see in the word. We can see the model how Jesus handled every situation. We say, okay, if it worked for Jesus, it has to work for me, right? Does that make sense? If it worked for Jesus, it has to work for me. Because he said, as I am, so are you in this world. So it has to work for us as well. Even with grace, though, there are principles that we need to live by that bring life. When you find a principle that brings life, embrace that principle. You know, I was working with a lady at my work, and when she started a few months ago, she had migraines, you know, like two or three a month. And if anybody's ever had those things, I guess they're just terrible. They'll put you in bed all day long. You'll have sunglasses on, dark room, total quietness is the way I understand it. It happens. And she said to me, you know what? I found out what it was. It was dairy. Just dairy. And she said, when I cut dairy out of my diet, the migraines went. Now, if you had migraine headaches, and you knew that dairy was the problem, are you just going to go, well, Jesus, just heal me so that you know, I can continue to eat dairy. Why don't you just start by working with him? If dairy is causing the problem, learn the principle, don't put dairy in your body. You will not die. There's flax milk, there's coconut milk, there's cashew milk, there's all kinds of things that taste just as good and are much better. I really didn't want to go there. I really didn't. One of these days I'm going to open that up. Learn from Jesus what brings life and embrace it. Kenneth Copeland is 79 years old, and I was watching him last week. He had Dr. Don Colbert. That's his doctor on the show. But Dr. Don Colbert, when you look at the guy, man, you're like, nobody looks healthier than Dr. Don Colbert. Dr. Don Colbert's his doctor, but he's not feeding them a whole bunch of injections like we shoot cows up with. You know what he's doing? He's teaching them how to eat. He's teaching them how to supplement. He's teaching them how to live. 
Kenneth Copeland is 79 years old and the man still skis. Now how many other 79 year old people do you know that are still skiing? He's learned the principles. He's learned to walk with God and work with God and watch God. So you say, Mark, can you explain that? I just did. You walk with God, work with God, and watch what God does. He says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you will learn to live life freely and lightly. Now, by virtue of how Matthew chapter 11 ends, those 28, 29th, and 30th verse, where Jesus is saying, come unto me, all you that labor, and are heavy laden, I'm going to give you rest. Then that means Jesus was dealing with something prior to that, that he needed to say that. There was something that was very relevant, something that was going on, and of course as you read all of Matthew 11, you'll see what he was getting at. But here's one of the things he was getting at. He knew we were going to encounter issues in life that make us tired and worn out and delirious and whatever. In Matthew chapter 11, that very same chapter, verses 1 through 5 says this, after Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, now this is John the Baptist, when John, who was in prison, make note that he's in Herod's prison. Herod has put him in prison. When John, who was in prison, heard what Christ was doing, he sent his own disciples. John had his own disciples too. He sent his disciples to ask him, watch what he says, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Man, what happened to John? This is cousin Jesus replied, he says, go back to John. What does John's name mean? Grace. I love what Jesus said. Go back to John. In other words, he was literally saying, go back to grace. Why don't you go back to grace? Why don't you go back? And sometimes we have to do that. We have to go back and, and remember when Jesus first gave us a new heart and he birthed life into us. We have to go back in time sometimes just to remember the goodness of the Lord. If it's been a while and you've been dry for a while, then go back to grace. Go back to when he first saved you and birthed uh, in you a new heart. He says, go back to John and report what you hear and what you see. And again, that's all we do here at Triumph and Grace Ministries. We keep reporting what we hear and what we see. So he says, go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. And the first thing he says is the blind. The blind receive sight. You know, you can have 20-20 vision and still be blind. You can still be spiritually blind with excellent physical vision. And then he said, the lame, the lame walk. Friends, I want to tell you something. You can leap over tall buildings in a single bound and still be spiritually lame. The message of his extravagant dimensions of Christ's love will strip away those crutches. It'll strip away your wheelchair. It'll strip away those braces as you embrace this message of his extravagant love. And he says to them, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. I love how he saved that one for last. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Go back and tell John all of this stuff. Back to the question. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Here's what I felt the Lord say to me this week as I was thinking on that. John's imprisonment, in other words, he's in this bondage, if you will, now. It has caused John to second guess things about Jesus and has robbed him of his rest. I mean, it, literally out of his own mouth. It's the same tactic that the enemy has been using as a weapon on the people of God and people that really love God with all their heart. Because of his dire circumstances, the circumstances that he was in now, 
John is beginning to vacillate between what he knows to be true and what he is feeling in his soul. It's the same thing we do. We know something to be absolutely true, but then we feel a certain way. Friends, listen, you cannot walk by feelings. So he's vacillating right now. It's a place where a large portion of the body of Christ is stuck. Say, not me. (laughs) Not me. I'm resting in grace righteousness. John is vacillating between what he knows to be true and his emotions. And we see this in 1 Kings. We see the story of a man named Elijah. And King Ahab has had his fill with Elijah. And he summons Elijah to come before him. You know who King Ahab is? He's married to Jezebel, a very wicked queen. He's very wicked too. And finally, he summons Elijah to come before him. And Elijah has drawn a line in the sand. He said, that's it, king. He knows how wicked he is. He serves the God of Baal. And King Ahab has 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. There's 850 what he calls prophets of Baal, false gods. And Elijah says, it's showtime. We're going to see who the real God is here. We're going to find out who the real God is. He says this to the people. These are the people that are in and out of wanting to serve the, the true God and, and then wanting to serve the gods of Baal. And he says to them in the English Standard Version, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Friends, the church has been limping between two different opinions for a long time on the subject of grace. Every minister will preach you are saved by grace, but it takes the daring and the bold to step out and say, you're not only saved by grace, you are kept by his amazing grace. I'm going to tell you something, it takes the daring and the bold to draw that line. You say, Pastor Mark, what would you say to someone who challenged you on that statement? I would say, friends, why don't you go meditate? on the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. You see, that's what began to change in my heart is when I quit thinking about me and I started meditating on the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. And I began to see. I began to see. I suddenly was no longer blind. I was no longer lame. I was no longer deaf. I could hear and I could see and I could walk differently. And so can you as this message of his unconditional love is dropping into your heart. That's the gospel. Amen. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5, here's how I handle people, really, if we get on the subject of eternal security, okay? I take them to John chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, watch this, that he should give eternal life. Why would we want to cheapen that up? Jesus shed his blood. He shed all of his blood for you and me. And why would we want to say it's conditional life? He didn't call it that. He said, this is eternal life. I give him eternal life. And he says, I give this eternal life to as many as you have given him. And then he defines what eternal life is. I love this. Are you ready for it? So you know, this is what eternal life is. You think it's complicated? It's not complicated. Verse 3, it says, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. When you say, I know God. God is my Father. When you say, Jesus is my brother, my big brother, if you will. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. That is eternal life. 
That means I have put my trust, not in me, but I put my trust in my Father, and I put my trust in my Jesus. That is eternal life. And then he says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work. He says, I have finished the work. We talk about a finished work. Jesus himself said it. He said, I have finished the work. In other words, what he's saying, there's nothing left for them to do to be right with you other than just receive this gift. It's just that easy. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Skipping up to verse 20. He says this. This part of the prayer is really for us. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Whose message? Their message. Triumphant Grace's message. Joseph Prince's message. Creflo Dollar's message. Andrew Womack's message. Paul White's message. John Sheesby, men and women of God that will stand and declare the grace of God. He said, you're going to believe it through their message that all of them may be one. My wife preached an awesome message last week on the oneness with Christ. Here's Jesus talking about that we'd all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me. Jesus said, I've given them the glory that you have given me. It's the same glory. He said, I've given you the the glory you gave me. This is not a new fabricated glory in the workshop. This is the same glory, Father, that you put on me. And if the Father put glory on Jesus, what an awesome gift that must be. If the Father said, Son, you you finished the work. I'm so proud of you, Son. Oh, I'm going to put the same glory that you laid down in heaven before you came to be a man, and I'm going to take that same glory, and I'm going to robe you in that glory. And Son, the glory that is on you, I'm going to put on them. The same glory. I've got Jesus' glory. I've got the Father's robe on me. I've got the Father's glory on me. Why would you be excited about that? I've got the Father's glory on me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Watch what he says. That they may be one as we are one. He's getting into this oneness thing here. That they may be one as we are one. We're not separate from Christ. We are one with Christ. And then he says, I in them and you in me, okay? I'm in them, you're in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. And then he says, and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's not only the same glory, but it's the same love. He said, you love them with the same love that you love me with. Friends, listen, if there's a part of the Bible that you're reading and you don't understand, default back to these scriptures, okay? Okay? Because you've got Jesus' glory on you and you've got the Father's love on you. Can it get any better than that? It can't get any better than that. Oh, even as you have loved me, same glory, same love. Knowing this, you know what it does? It causes me to rest in grace righteousness. Just knowing that I've got his glory, I've got his love. So back to John the Baptist's question in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. He says, are you the one who is to come Or should we expect someone else? As I thought about it, it's kind of a decent question. You know, I'm not going to beat John up. It's a decent question if you throw out Matthew chapter 3. Because in Matthew chapter 3, John is standing in the Jordan River baptizing people. When all of a sudden he looks up and he gets excited and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God 
What was he doing? He was saying, I know exactly who you are. Nobody had been called the Lamb of God. And he said to him, behold, look, look everybody, the Pharisees were standing there, and the Sadducees, and all these people, it could have been hundreds, and he said, behold. And because he was standing in the water, if you've ever been out in a boat in the water, I want you to know your voice travels. Everybody there heard him. Pharisees got really ticked off. But he said, look, the Lamb of God, I know who you are. But he said, wait a minute, I know why you've came. Who taketh away the sin of the world. So he was saying, listen, I know exactly who you are. I know exactly why you've come. And before he was even ready to take his next breath, the heavens opened and that majestic voice of the Father echoed out of it. And he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now John, asking this crazy question, somehow it seems has forgotten about the fact that he knew exactly who Jesus was. He knew exactly why he came, and he heard the Father in heaven confirm it. If John the Baptist, who was a cousin of Jesus, six months older than Jesus, if that could happen to John, believe me, that can happen to you, and that can happen to me. And that's what the enemy is banking on. He's banking on that someday you'll say, really? You'll start questioning him. You'll start vacillating between what you know to be true and what you're feeling at the moment. Don't go by feelings. Feelings will lie to you. Emotions will lie to you. You stand on the Word of God. You plant yourself firmly on the love of God and watch the extravagant riches and the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love set up and root up in your life. That's what happens when we operate off our emotions, though. You know what? You won't always feel righteous. <laughs> there are just times nothing in you that feels righteous. Am I talking to anybody? Can anybody understand me in here? There are just times you don't feel righteous, right? What are we going by? We're going by emotions, aren't we? We're going by feelings. You are forever righteous in Christ. What had Jesus been doing for the last 30 years? The Bible says he was 30 years old, about 30, when he began his ministry. What had Jesus been doing for the last 30 years that the Father was so pleased about? I mean, the Father just said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What had he been doing for 30 years? Resting in grace righteousness. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly who his Father was. He had nothing to prove except, not to himself anyway, to the world, yes, to prove that his father was good, to prove that his father was the way, to prove that his father was an awesome daddy. That's all he was doing. He knew who he was and he knew who he belonged to. You know, this past week we had to watch Sarah's dog when they went to Florida and they brought their bulldog over. Oh, man, Max. He's one year old and he's a monster of a dog. I mean, that dude is, the thing is huge. Max is his name and he's got a lot of puppy left in him. And so we know we take our dog to their house. She tells us, you know, if we're, if we're out of town for a while, we know that our dog doesn't want to eat for two or three, four or five days, whatever, you know, just the way they are. Max was no different. He came there and he had his big bowl of dog food and she said, he just, boy, he'll just, he'll eat every crumb of it when you give him two scoops of it in the morning and two scoops at night. Max wasn't eating. He wasn't eating. And I'm like, Max, all right, you got a lot of weight on you, so you're not going to starve to death in a week, but you really need to eat, Max. Once in a while, he'd pick up a couple little things and punch them down. That was it. I'm like, that ain't enough for a bulldog your size, Max. Finally, one day, I just had enough of it. I had him on the lead in the kitchen, you know. I just reached down and I grabbed him and I said, Max, you're such a bulldog. You're such a bulldog, Max. You're such a good little guy. Max, you're an awesome little guy. Come on, Max. And I turned him loose and man, Max just immediately went to the dish and started eating. You know, I, I was, I'm like, whoa, that works. All I think he wanted to do was be affirmed. All he wanted to know is that he was accepted. 
That's all it was. He just wanted to know, you like me, don't you? Yeah, I like you, Max. You're a good dog. You're a lot of work, but you're a good dog. Here's the, the scriptures that came to my mind in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. The Apostle Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons of Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It was his grace that made you accepted in the beloved. It was his grace that made us accepted. Just like Max, when he knew he was accepted and loved, his response was to eat. His response was to just go at it. Friends, when you know that you have been accepted in the beloved, you will eat the message of God's extravagant love. You'll drink this message of his grace righteousness. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, we find these words. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard. It didn't say the message you heard. It said the message they heard was of no value to them. Why? Because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed have entered that rest so we can literally say, I'm resting in grace righteousness. Skipping up to verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for anyone who enters God's rest, and God's rest, by the way, is Christ, okay? God's rest is Christ. Anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. In other words, their performance-based life of Christianity, just as God did from His. Now, I want to show you. I laid that foundation to be able to say, let's go over into the Old Testament now, and let's take a look at resting in grace righteousness. Can we find it back there? Absolutely. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, we find these words. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. Now watch what he's about to say, verse 8. It says, but Noah, Noah, what does Noah's name mean? Noah's name means rest. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This word grace here is the first time it's mentioned in the Bible. And it's mentioned in direct connection with rest. In other words, it's literally saying, and rest found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then going down to verse 9, it says, This is the account of Noah and his family. And it says this, literally in the Bible, it says, Noah was a righteous man. So in two verses, in the Old Testament, you, what you see is you see a picture of rest. You see the picture of grace. You see the picture of our righteousness. And that word righteous, by the way, is the very first time it comes up in the Old Testament. So God is trying to paint this picture for us. He's trying to show us something that's so awesome that we, are, we have been resting in grace righteousness as long as we're in the ark. Noah, who they say is a type of Christ, really the type of Christ in this picture is the ark. That's a picture of Christ. But notice the order though. Noah, which means rest, grace, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man. You say, man, I wish I could be like Noah. Man, 
how in the world could God say something like that? I'm full of grace. I'm full of righteousness. He says the same thing about you and me. We just got to go into a different book. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body, that is his ark. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and it says this, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. It's hard to get it, isn't it? That you stand before Christ, you stand before the Father without a single fault. Man, everything in this world tells me just the opposite. Don't listen to the world. Jesus said, listen, you're not of this world. You're in it, but you're not of it. Skipping up to verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. You see a picture of the Godhead just in what he's saying right there. He says, make yourself an ark. The ark is Christ, we know that. Put rooms in it. And we know the Father said, in my house are many rooms. And he says, I want you to coat the ark with pitch. It was a tarry substance. You don't want the boat leaking, right? You ever been in a boat? You don't want it leaking, believe me. He said, I want you to take pitch and I want you to coat it both on the inside as well as the outside. And that is really just a symbolic picture of the Holy Spirit because literally what that pitch was was a sealant. And the Bible says that we are sealed until the day of redemption. So you can see that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit who has sealed you inside of Jesus. Do you see the picture? you see the imagery? So beautiful. And he says in verse 16, this is probably my favorite part. He says, put a door in the side of the ark. Put a door in the side of the ark. Now I want you to see this picture. Christ is the last Adam. That was the first Adam. Christ is called the last Adam. When God looked at the first Adam, he said, you know, it's not good that you're alone. I need to get you a bride. And he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you to sleep. He said, I'm going to open up your side and I'm going to pull a rib out. I'm going to pull your wife right out of your side. There she is. In the ark here, it literally says, Put a door in the side of the ark. And when you step over into the New Testament, I love this picture. The Lord was communicating this to me this morning even. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? Yes, Daddy, I remember that. He said, do you remember when they came by to hasten death by breaking their legs? I said, I remember that. Do you remember the thieves' legs were broken with a, a Louisville slugger, if you will? I remember that, Daddy. But when they came to break Jesus' leg, the Bible says he'd already died. You see, God had already put him to sleep. And the centurion came along with that spear. There was no need to do this. They knew he was dead already. But they took that spear right up under his rib cage, right into his heart, and pulled it back. And the Bible says blood and water flowed out. I want you to notice this, that the first bride was drawn from Adam's side. And today's bride is drawn through Christ's side. But you have to come through the blood and you have to come through the water. 
You must come through the blood. You must be born again. You must have the water of the washing of the word on you. Do you see the beautiful picture? You see, God had to put both Adams to sleep. Christ is our last Adam. And it was always what he had in mind was the bride. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all the life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But here's what he says, but I will establish my covenant. See, it's always been about covenant with God. He said, I'm going to establish my covenant. What covenant was Noah under? It was a covenant of grace. You see, it wouldn't be till Exodus when Moses would get the law. And then it would go all the way until Christ again. Then we'd be back to the covenant of grace that God had already planned forever. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Genesis 7. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark. You and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. And then he says, seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth. And he says, for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And I felt the Lord say this to me recently when I was studying and, and thinking about this. The number 40 is very significant. We see here that God started a new beginning with this 40-day flood, 40 days and 40 nights. When you move into Exodus, you'll find that Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and he did it twice because he got all ticked off and broke the Ten Commandments the first time, had to go back up. But Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when you step over into the New Testament, when Jesus began his ministry, what does the Bible say? The Spirit led him into the desert to fast for 40 days and 40 nights. You can see these covenants. You can see the covenant that God had with Noah, which was a covenant of grace. You can see it's a covenant he didn't want to give, but he gave it to, to Moses anyway. After a 40-day fast, he gave him this covenant of law. But then Jesus said, listen, let me tell you why I've just shed my blood. Let me let you know why you just, I allowed you to put a spear in my side. It's because I want to take you back to the covenant of grace. I want to take you back. I don't want you under this covenant of law. You can't know my father the way I know my father. You can't feel his unforced rhythms of grace under the old covenant, but you can under this grace. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day, you hear that seven in there? The number of rest. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, and I'm not kidding you, the word Ararat literally means, in Hebrew, the curse has been reversed. It's interesting that the ark would be, Jesus himself would be sitting right on top of that mountain range, a mountain range that literally means the curse has been reversed. You talk about showing off. Of all the places that boat could have ended up, it ended up on the mountain of the curse has been reversed. You see, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus clearly tells us he became the curse for us that we would never have to walk under the curse again. How awesome. Friends, hidden in the Sunday school story of Noah's Ark, our Father hid the darling of heaven and the desire of his heart that every single man would experience the gift of righteousness, that every man would come to know the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. 
that every man would learn the unforced rhythms of grace and that every man would live a life so that he could find himself continually resting in grace, righteousness. Amen. Father, I want to thank you. I've stood here and delivered the word the way you gave it to me in Jesus' name. And I want to thank you, Father, that your word brings healing to our hearts and healing to our souls in Jesus' name. Father, cause us to see. I mean, it is so plain in your word. You've given us eyes to see the message of grace. You've given us eyes to see this covenant of grace in Jesus' name. I don't find it a coincidence that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I believe it was to say, Father, I want to remind you that this has always been a covenant of grace. That has been your heart from the very beginning. And Daddy, when I'm going through this 40-day fast, it's not so that just some greater anointing comes on me. It's not because of that. I can't earn this anointing, Daddy. But I'm putting you in remembrance. I'm putting you in remembrance of this covenant of grace that my people could rest in grace righteousness. Father, seal this word in our hearts. Don't let it escape. In Jesus' name, amen.